Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific. Isabel Rosario Cooper, if mentioned at all by mainstream history books, is often a salacious footnote. The young Filipino mistress of General Douglas MacArthur, hidden away at the Charleston Hotel in D.C. Empire's Mistress, starring Isabella Rosario Cooper by Professor Renadette Vicuña Gonzalez, published by Duke University Press earlier this year, reduces to redu- refuses to reduce Cooper's life to that simple statement. The book investigates Cooper's life both in the Philippines, where she was a famed vaudeville and film actress, and in the United States, where her life shows the struggles that Asian actors and actresses faced in a prejudiced Hollywood. Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez is professor of American studies at the University of Hawaii at NOAA and author of Securing Paradise, Tourism and Militarism in Hawaii in the Philippines and co-editor of Detours, A Decolonial Guide to Hawaii, both also published by Duke University Press. Today, I'll ask Bernadette to introduce us to Isabel Cooper and go beyond the simplistic historical narrative of her as MacArthur's mistress. We'll talk about how her life exemplifies how imperialism, gender, and entertainment intersected in both the Philippines and the United States, and we'll briefly explore how this connects with the idea of being Asian American. So, Vernadette, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Perhaps it's best to start by introducing the main subject of the book, Isabel Cooper. Who was she, and what drove you to write about her? Thanks for having me, Nicholas. It's really a pleasure to to chat with you about this book. Um, so the, the, the question, the very question that you asked, who was Isabel Cooper, is what drove me to write about her. Um, I didn't know anything about this person um, when I was growing up in the Philippines, nor in any of really the Philippine history that I had read. Um, she first actually appeared to me as a fictional character. Um, and I tell this story in the first um, chapter in the book, but she came as a fictional character. It was sort of a, I thought was a stock character, you know, that sort of tragic Eurasian um, uh, entertainer who gets mixed up with um, the colonial figure. And so um, that was fascinating to me. And I thought it was more, it was more of a fictional kind of stock figure. But when I started looking into it, 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 it became clear that there wasn't a real person behind the, the fictional uh, figuration of, of Isabel Cooper. And when I read, I, I think I first, I, I'm not, I don't even remember, this was in graduate school in the 90s, in the late 90s, um, how I actually realized that she was real. Um, but I, I did remember reading a, um, a, a MacArthur biography and in, in one of the, um, and I can't even remember which one it was because the, because there are so many, <laughs> um, and she appears in, in brief mention. And so that started to intrigue me. I, I like stories of folks who are not the main characters. And so um, that's, that's also what sort of drove me to write about her because I wanted to center her story, um, to center the story of this very unlikely person, this, this less than heroic figure. Um, so that's what, that's what kind of is the motivating factor um, um, behind that. So Empire's Mistress gets this out of the way early, and, and I want to reflect that in the interview as well. So let's, I guess, get this over with. 
Um, what was Isabel's Coop- what was Isabel Cooper's relationship with General MacArthur? Um, well, they're certainly lovers at one point. Um, it's I always found it very interesting that whenever um, Isabel Cooper comes up in any kind of historical mention, whether it's somebody's blog or the occasional article that is written about her um, in the media, um, she's always tied to the general. Right. That's that's the defining characteristic of of Isabel Cooper. And she's either very beautiful. uh, She's always very beautiful, very young compared to him. There's a 30 year difference. Um, And, you know, the fact that she's an actor is something that occasionally gets mentioned. But they were certainly lovers. Um, They were lovers for about they were together for about five years um, in the late 1920s to early to mid 1930s. Um, And. You know, this was a, a the case of an older, politically powerful man who was involved with a youthful, um, famous, very desirable woman. Um, one of the things I also try to get out of the way is the question of were they in love? Because I think there's a certain romanticization <laughs> of that. Um, and I will say, go so far as to say perhaps um, the better way to frame it is that they were engaged perhaps in a mutual fantasy of love, at least definitely on his part, um, because we can see from the letters he wrote her that there was a, a real kind of sense of passion and obsession over this, uh, over this woman. Um, and we don't, we don't get so much from her um, during that time of how she felt in that relationship. Um, but that five years comes to define how she is written about for the rest of her life. So it, it was fascinating to me, but I, because of that, I also wanted to delve um, much deeper behind um, the story of, of Isabel Cooper because it didn't seem right to me that a relationship of five years should be the thing that defines who she is as a historical figure. Right. I think especially because some of MacArthur's biographies, I think I looked at some examples, they, they really do kind of revel in some of the, they kind of, they, they kind of revel in the relationship and some of the images and tropes that um, it brings up. Uh Um, But let's talk about Isabel Cooper's life outside of, outside of those five years, Mm -hmm. you know, define her outside of that relationship. Um, Perhaps I'd like to ask about her, her time as a vaudeville actress in the Philippines. I guess my first question is kind of what was vaudeville and what kind of performances are we talking about? And, and And then I guess what, what is Isabel Cooper's, role in these performances? Sure. Um, so in the early colonial period, and I'm talking about um, the early 1900s, um, up until the 1920s, at least, um, which is when Isabel, um, you know, she leaves the Philippines in, in 1929, 1930. Um, um, there is a efflorescence of of um that's a sort of Filipino version of vaudeville. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and just like in the United States and elsewhere in Europe, um, vaudeville in the Philippines is made up of comedy skits, song and dance routines, magical acts, torch songs. It's a, it's a real sort of cornucopia of, of um, variety, right, uh, variety acts. Um, and in the Philippines, this is particularly hybrid um, because you get a mix of very Filipino genres, which themselves are a mix of Spanish and Filipino <laughs> theatrical musical forms with American um, genres like jazz and other kinds of novelty acts. So um, that's a real kind of, um, that's what Bodabil looks like in the Philippines. And 
um, the stage is a real kind of um, um, prominent cultural form, particularly in the city, but also in the countryside, right? Um, in terms of of explaining history, um, making fun of political figures, uh, making uh, you know, creating commentary about life in the Philippines um, in the 1910s and 1920s, when we're talking about sort of Isabel Cooper getting her start on the on the Manila stages. Um, the other thing that we would want to keep in mind is that this is also when questions of the state, the state of the nation, right, or the state of the the Commonwealth, the colony at this time, um, um, intersects with. Um, the question of the Filipina, because so often the nation and the, the female figure are sort of bound up together. Um, and so the stage, um, political questions, um, questions about women, these were all sort of brought up together. And so this is when I think one of the things that kind of creates the, a, a particularly intense situation or intense milieu for Isabel Cooper to to come into her own on the stage. Um, the stage, I, I would say, Bodabil is really aimed towards um, you know the, the folks who can afford it. The you know Filipinos, a lot of American soldiers on liberty because um, it's an occupied country. A lot of American bureaucrats and administrators. They're the ones for whom an American hybrid repertoire is is um, generated um, by by these young Filipino actors, similar to what happens in in sort of um, military situations where you have, uh, um, you know, a, a native, a so-called native act that takes on the mimicry of, of um, uh, the repertoire of the country, the occupying country. So you get a sense of that, but also it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated and mixed because um, you're seeing a lot of this um, mixing on stage and a lot of, you know, uh, Manila is a really kind of complex city. Uh, There's a lot of different folks mixing in that city. So you're getting a, a a really interesting mix of people, interesting mix of genres. Um, A lot of folks like uh, Teddy Cole and Lucy San Pablo Burns um, write a lot about, the stage and um, very little of the actual ephemera is left. So I, I try to hunt down some of this stuff in terms of um, Bodabil playbills and, and such. And there's very little um, that you can find about this. But luckily, she and her contemporaries were written about a lot, right? A lot of folks were really interested in what, what the stage had to offer and how folks who had stage lives and um, sort of uh, stage names could become um, uh, almost, they could become national types of characters. So this is where she becomes to start, she starts to become famous and, and um, earn a name for herself. And this is when she is known as Dimples, right? Um, she is named by the sort of impresario of Bodabil at this time, um, Lou, Lou Borromeo, who um, sort of imports American style vaudeville to the Philippines. Um, and she's named for the the dimples that she has when she smiles. It's funny now that you now now that you have actually pronounced Bona Bill for me, right? Kind of like head on forehead, like oh, of course. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but but she also she also then moves into in, into film for a bit. And I think you note that Cooper has the first the first kiss on Filipino cinema. Um, 
they get, first of all, you know, what, what is the film industry like in the Philippines during this time? And two, uh, was it seen as a very big deal for her to be, I guess, a party to the first kiss shown on screen? Oh, okay. So to answer that last question first, the second question first, it was an absolute huge deal. It be, it made her infamous, right? Um, but let me back up a little and answer the first question. Um, the Philippine um, film industry was in its infancy during that time. Um, we've actually just celebrated the centennial of the Philippine film industry in the last year or so. So um, that's been that's been going on a lot in Manila and elsewhere in the Philippines. I think Nick Diocampo just uh, published a book on um, on uh, film and Filipino film. Um, but I depended a lot on a lot of Philippine um, based Filipino um, historians. Um, to capture the textures of those early days, right? And the sort of internal social cultural workings of the industry. Um, Isabel Cooper was was sort of like born into a perfect historical storm. She claims um, that she was on stage at five at one point in her life. And because she's an unreliable narrator of her own life, she lies a lot. Right? And we find this out because there's a lot of um, contradictory uh, material that she produces. But um, she says she's, she's on stage at five. But um, at some point during her early teens, she leaves the Philippines um, and doesn't come back until 1919 or so with her mother. And at that time, 1919 is uh, a big fil- year for Philippine film. Um, that is when the first studio um full-length film um is is produced by um jose napumuseno who is really the godfather of filipino film um who came up with a distinct filipino style that also melded modern hollywood techniques so she comes back to manila during this point where the first film um of and it's a story about it's an oblique story, right? It just tells the story. Let me back up. It tells the story obliquely of Filipina sexuality, but doesn't actually have anything about sex in there. Right? Um, and so it's, it's a really fascinating time. It was a very fertile time in terms of what, what kind what kinds of stories are being told through film, who is telling them, how they're telling them. And so um, he founded a, small movie studio with his brother Jesus called the Malayan movie studio. Um, at this point, it, what we would see in the Philippines were a lot of Hollywood um, imported films. Um, so it was really novel to have a Filipino studio with Filipino directors, producers, and actors do something in the scope and style and the kind of storyline that competed with the, the way that Hollywood uh, films told their stories. So when she returned to the Philippines as a young teenager, um, after a short stint with her father, the, the whole family had moved over to Arizona, and then the mother came back um, with just the kids. Nepomuceno, um, you know, starts to look for his next project, and with another person who sort of apprentices in Hollywood. So there were a lot. Of, there was a lot of back and forth traffic. Um, um, Vicente Salombides, um, they decide that they're going to to uh, tell a, a love story, a sort of comedic love story, but also um, decided that it was time for Filipinos to have their own screen kiss. Um, at that time, it was all 
you know, Hollywood actors um, kissing on screen, which was scandalous in and of itself. But they figured, you know, with questions around modernity, um, suffrage, uh, this is the 1920s, so it's the Roaring Twenties. There's a lot of kinds of the spirit of freedom, a spirit of equality to a certain degree, um, and maybe pushing certain kinds of boundaries culturally and um, socially that um, Depu Moseno wanted to get in on. And he and Vicente spotted um, Dimples Cooper on stage doing her vaudeville act and figured this is a person who's got the face that we want. Um, she is mixed race. So she has a certain kind of, there's an association, right? With um, modernity and mixed raceness. Um, maybe uh, she has, a, she has a really interesting face, right? It shows up well on screen. I um, mean, we see this later with the actual extant films that we have uh, film footage that we have of Isabel Cooper. Um, so she became um, the face of the first Filipino screen kiss, and it was scandalous. They filmed it in front of a of a a, a, a church. Um, I think the friars didn't know <laughs> it was going to be a, a screen kiss filmed on the church, and so you know it was it was like shutting the barn doors after the horses had run out. But you know they they forbade any more uh, films to be filmed on on church grounds after that. But it was it was. A riot. Um, there, there are um, a, a few reviews or a few accounts of folks seeing the the screen kiss and hollering and whistling and whooping and hollering. You know, so that kind of reaction to seeing a Filipina and a Filipino kissing on screen was a big deal. So it it made her infamous. Um, I think one thing that that struck me about Isabel Cooper's story. Um, you know, kind of unlike, you know, un- unlike, let's say, the immigrant stories you may hear, you may see in fiction or even as presented in history, you know, someone stays in the original country and then they move to the United States where they set up roots and make a life for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Cooper goes back and forth between the Philippines and the United States pretty frequently. I think she goes as a child and then comes back. She does tours in the U.S. as a vaudeville actress and then comes back and then and then only, I think, stays in the U.S. long term after being brought over by by MacArthur. In fact, as, as you know, that's she she actually then refuses to go back after MacArthur tries to send her home. I, I guess was was going back and forth like this common for Filipino and Filipino Americans at the time? I think it's a class issue, right? Um mm. Um, Filipinos, there were many laborers um, from the very, like the working class, folks who were doing agricultural labor, um, who were working in fisher, uh, fishing and in salmon canneries in Alaska and on the West Coast. Um, so though, for those Filipinos, I think the back and forth was not something that they experienced. But Filipinos were um, also, a, or, you know, surprisingly cosmopolitan. I think I knew this in my head. But seeing the evidence of it um, in publications, um, you know, about Manila society in particular, um, Filipinos were surprisingly cosmopolitan since Spanish colonial days, right? Um, it wasn't unusual for um, folks of the scholarly class, merchant classes, um, social society, you know, elite society, um, musicians and artists to travel to the United States and Europe and Spain um, and go back and forth, right, um, as, as in their own kinds of tours. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that 
During this period, Filipinos were considered wards of the U.S. colonial state and as such had more freedom to move back and forth from the United States and Philippines. They weren't trapped in the same way that, say, Chinese or Japanese or Koreans were, right? Um, It still costs money to go back and forth, but they weren't trapped in the same way um, and they were not subject to the Asian exclusion laws. Um, And in fact, uh, they became, Filipinos became a, a sort of labor workaround for um, labor needs in the United States. Um, so, so you, you see a little bit more mobility. Um, but I would, I would say it's of a cer- for, for a certain class. So I'd like to kind of jump forward in time here. Um, after, after the whole business with, with MacArthur, um, Isabel Cooper moves to Hollywood. Well, first she remarried and then that, doesn't end well either um and then and then she moves to hollywood um where she tries to try tries to make it big in in film there um she's not whole she she's not very successful i think she gets a lot of non-speaking roles a few bit Mm -hmm. roles here and there um and so i guess i want to ask you know what was it like for um an asian actor or actress trying to make trying to find a place for themselves in american filmmaking of that of that time period. Yeah. So again, I think here I relied on a lot of the work that um, scholars of Asian um, actors, Asian American actors have done on folks like Anna Mae Wong or Philip Ahn. Right. Um, But those folks are outliers Um, for the most part. There are a lot more folks like Isabel Cooper um, trying to make their way through Hollywood. Um, The reality of it was that somebody like her could not make a living. Um, as an actor in Hollywood, you see the massive pay disparities. When I looked at the, what lead actors like uh, Paulette Goddard and other folks like her um, were being paid compared to somebody like Isabel Cooper, who would work for an extra for maybe five days of a shoot. It was, it was a really massive kind of pay difference. She mostly supported herself by working in nightclubs. Um, uh, And so she would do the, you know, in Hollywood as, in LA, like in San Francisco, there were a lot of sort of um, exotic themed nightclubs. And so she worked as a hula dancer and I'm sure other kind. you know, she danced other kinds of dances that were, that, that would sort of um, fit her look. Um, so, so you see her um, mostly making her, you know, making her way through her Hollywood life like that. And then with then um, getting some, bit parts in, in, in films. Um, it was tough, right? There were a lot of, um, there were a lot of things that, that limited the kinds of roles that she could play. Um, there were certainly roles that were, um, lead type roles in the, in the, um, films that she was in, such as Charlie Chan films and other kinds of roles. But even those lead roles that were cast for well, that that um, assumed a lead person of color as the actor um, either used yellow face, red face, right, um, to to actually cast white actors in the speaking in the lead speaking roles, while um, actual people of color um, were cast as as the background. So she was more background than anything, um, and a lot of the roles, um, you know, asked for for people like Isabel Cooper to do a lot of self exoticizing, um, either using accents or, 
um, you know, she's Filipina, but she's asked to play Chinese. She's, uh, she plays uh, Native American. She plays all kinds of different things. Um, she does also play Filipinas. Um, but yeah, so her early parts uh, were in, her early speaking parts were in Charlie Chan films, right? So um, sort of white face <laughs> detective, um, a sort of famous figure. And she played a Chinese woman, Chinese secretary in one um, Chinese American secretary in one in one film, and uh, the servant of a, a Chinese princess in another. So, you know, these are really limited roles. Um, the interesting part is that her foray into um, into Hollywood happened during World War II. So there were <laughs> there were there were some there was sort of a a, 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 a spike in Pacific theater movies. Um, and war movies. And so that allowed for her to, to have parts like, you know, playing a geisha in a World War II film, playing a Filipino nurse or a Javanese nurse in another. Um, so these were all World War II films. So in a sense, um, when I write about this in the book, I talk about how MacArthur, who is a big World War II figure, sort of follows her in her filmic career, even though they are long done at this point. Um, so in that sense, there's 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 this strange reintersection of real life and, and filmic life for her. Um, so this, this this next question is potentially dealing with 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 a lot of ideas so so um i'm hopefully hopefully we'll be able to grapple with everything in in your answer um but you talk a lot in the book about kind of the intersection between you know between between empire and power and gender um you you hinted this at, at the beginning where you say we kind of in some ways we we don't know how isabel cooper felt about macarthur Mm-hmm. Um, because in some ways, how, how can you really, I guess, separate the idea of power and imperial power from anyone's decision about whether or not to conduct a relationship of that kind? Um, and so I guess kind of in, in looking at Isabel Cooper's story, how do you see all of these different, all these different things, you know, gender, imperialism, power, um, entertainment, how do you see all these things intersecting? Oh, well, that's the story of the book. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> um, so in in a way, I didn't want to reproduce. There's a lot of amazing work that examines how gender, sexuality, race intersects with empire, right, on an ideological level, and particularly in Asia. Um, so there's a lot of sort of scholarly work that does that. So I didn't necessarily want to add to that because I, 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 you know, that wasn't the 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 purpose for the, for me, for the book. Right. Um, so you see this kind of, um, scholarly work, perhaps, uh, making an argument for how gender intersects with empire as a kind of driving logic for war and occupation. Right. We also see how gender works through the actual apparatuses of colonialism, like the military, like education and tutelage. So, um, there's a lot of scholarly work on that. And I think that actually um, is the foundation that I rely on so that I don't have to rehearse that's that kind of work or, you know, go, go over it in the book. So I'm able to kind of just tell the story of Isabel Cooper for which I'm really grateful. Right. Um, but so I wanted to see how, um, gender and empire intersected through the intimate much more, um, closely, right. Um, the relationships that 
that do the work, that do the sort of social reproduction of empire, the rest and recreation, the emotional care that's provided, um, folks who are doing the laundry, right? Um, or cleaning up or taking care of your children. And so I wanted to kind of get to that level of, 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 of detail, right? Like how does empire and gender and power operate through the, the sort of encounters on the, on the interpersonal level? Um, and so I, and then I also wanted to then tell that story through like the scale of one person um, and follow that person um, through her life to kind of trace the, the ways in which the dynamic of that shifted over time um, and whether, you know, um, and, and I think in the book, I make the, the sort of point that it never does leave her. Right. And in fact, um, it haunts her into her afterlife, right? Because these are the kinds of legacies we have of, of, uh, for, of imperialism. Um, so I think it's a really messy story. Um, it's definitely not straightforward. So what I really appreciated over the course of the research and the writing was that I tend to be somebody who likes really clean arguments. Right? It's, it's a lot easier to make a clean argument than it is to make a messy argument. But what became really clear was that this was not a straightforward kind of um, equation, that the story of power and empire and gender um, was about manipulation. Um, it wasn't about, um, you know, it wasn't about MacArthur having the upper hand at all times. He had all kinds of power in the relationship, but so did she, right? She had the power of um, um, like a, emotional hold over him. He was quite clearly smitten um, if we're going by the evidence of his letters and the evidence of his um, tendency to act indiscreetly when it came to her. Um, it was messy in the sense of the kinds of networks that are created, um, the kinds of favors that are done for people um, and the kinds of fantasies, right? That kind of sustain um um, imperialism in its different sites from Manila to Washington, D.C. to L.A., right? Um, and so, you know, in that sense, it, it it's a little bit messier story than what I thought um, I would be telling when I first started out. So um, I'll, I'll just kind of keep it there. So I think I, I, have, I have one more question. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, as as we both know, there's been a lot of discussion recently around what it means to be uh, Asian in America and Asian American. I know those aren't quite the same thing um, uh, in terms of what it means as a political identity, in terms of what it means to be um, a member of that community. Uh, it, it feels simplistic to kind of to kind of bring it down to to film, but given that Isabel Cooper was an actress. <laughs> Sure. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that I think the, the day before we were recording this interview, there was a study that found that I think, uh, Asian Pacific Islander actors only made up 6% of the last decade's top grossing films, uh, and the rock makes up a third of them. Um, so I guess kind of given this kind of, given the recent discussion around, again, being Asian in America and Asian American how do you see kind of Isabel Cooper's – well, first of all, I mean, how, how do you see Isabel Cooper's story in that light? And has researching Isabel Cooper given you, I think, particular insights around around this conversation today? Uh, that's a great question. I think that um, 
representing the complexity of a person who happens to be Asian is a big contribution, right, to to um, discussions or understandings of what it means to be Asian American. I mean, the, the reason um, we're having these stories, I mean, these, these discussions around what it means to be Asian or Asian American um, is there, it's not new, um, but the rhetoric around COVID um, and certain sort of political um, discussions has certainly created right a, a flashpoint for U.S. society to think about white supremacy and hopefully not just about Asian hate, but actually how white supremacy um, has always um, been shaped by gender and racism and class and empire. So. Um, you know, I'm trained as a as an ethnic studies scholar, and I think that there's there's a, a not a tendency, but like there's always a sort of political move. I think to um, represent the stories of of struggle and heroism, right? Because uh, that is a huge part of how Asian Americans um, tell their story as as folks who come to the United States, right? And 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 um, find belonging or find, um, or, or, you know, um, struggle for, for, for recognition and rights. But I was also really drawn to how, um, how Isabel's story does not fit that mold, right? She is, um, she is somebody who doesn't fit the heroic or the, uh, the mold of the good subject that would be worthy of, um, telling a story about she's 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 basically somebody who becomes infamous for sleeping with a general right um and so that that was interesting to me um i think that there there's um you know in particular and this has been something i've been thinking about recently particularly um with the shootings in atlanta that targeted asian women um and how that kind of um moment is connected to histories of diaspora that are driven by U.S. militarism, right? So the kinds of jobs Asian migrants are able to have here, or the kinds of jobs Asian women in particular, right, are able to have in Asia um, um, around the, the territories and um, spaces of militarism intersects um, and it's shaped by the kinds of sexualized, racialized fantasies about the place of Asian women, right? And so I think that Isabel's story, Isabel Cooper's story, gives a little bit more texture and depth to the ways in which we can understand the movements of Asian and Asian women, the places that they occupy in, in American society and Asian society, um, and so that we can understand this um this discussion about who Asians are, right, or who Asian Americans are. Um, and the kind of um, violent actions that are taken uh, up against them is more than a story of hate, but actually a story that is um, bound up in in American empire and militarism, right? And so I think that makes it a lot more complex and I think hopefully gives um, a sense of historical depth and understanding to why quote-unquote Asian hate happens, right? Because it's, it's not just... Asian hate. It's not a personalized feeling. It's part of a larger structure of empire. And so I think that if we understand Isabel Cooper's story as operating within that larger framework, within that architecture of American empire, then it starts to make sense, right? 
So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Bernadette Vicuña-Gonzalez, author of Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. Bernadette, one actual last question. Um, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Oh, what's next for me? I'm taking a break. Um, oh, well. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about a couple of projects. I'm thinking about a project about, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to write this about hospitality. Like, where does this concept come from? What are the different practices of hospitality? How is it gendered and racialized and sexualized? Um, but I'm not yet sure how to tell that story. And I like, I found since I've written this book that, um, I like telling stories in this way more than I like writing in sort of the more scholarly tone that we get trained in as PhDs. <laughs> um, so I have to figure out how to write that story. I've actually also been just experimenting a little with fiction, but I will not go into that. It's, I'm a little shy about that still. <laughs> um, but they can find my work. My, my other books are available through Duke University Press. You can just go through the Duke University Press website. Um, I think you can get them through... Um, uh, I think they have an Asian distributor, but also Amazon, other kinds of, you know, um, Barnes and Noble, other, other folks like that and, and local bookstores as well. Please use a local bookstore if you can. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The Asia View Books podcast can be found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Please stay tuned for more information about who's coming up on the show. But before then, Thank you so much, Bernadette, for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nick.